This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Hey, everyone. This is Jason. Before we start the show, I do want to let you guys know that in our brand new studio, we did have a little bit of a technical issue or technical difficulties, which... You know, look, it happens. <laughs> I think maybe it happens a little more often here, it seems like, but uh, we've been moving studios and shuffling around so often in the last, God, I don't know, three years. I think this is like show 95 or something like that. So we've done a lot of moving. We've, we've, this is now our third studio in 95 shows. <laughs> it's kind of a lot. Hopefully this will be the last studio here for a long while. But uh, anyway, so we had a, a couple streaming issues. Apparently um, I had the board feed from our, you know, the microphones going to the board, uh, the mixing board, and that goes into the computer. Um, I had that feed playing at the same time as the microphones on the cameras, which I don't understand why webcams come with microphones. I, I don't understand it because, it, anyway, it's it's weird. Um, but anyway, those were accidentally playing uh, over the over one another. So if you watch the YouTube video, it's a terrible mess. Uh, you can hear the content, but it's just, it doesn't sound great. Uh, not like podcasts, but, you know, we are a podcast company. But unfortunately, the second error <laughs> is that I didn't charge the batteries in the recorder, Um we have this little handheld unit that everything the board feeds into and would record into. Uh, I didn't charge the batteries well enough, so at about the 16-minute mark on the show, the recorder died. And I didn't realize it until 10 minutes later, and then I was like, well, that stinks. What do I do now? And uh, I'm trying to like run the show. I didn't want to stop the show and kind of... You know, whatever. So I anyway, I dug around for batteries, got the thing back up and running. But there's about a 14 minute window where there was no audio. So unfortunately, I had to pull the audio from the YouTube video and insert that in. So it's seamless ish, as about as seamless as I can make it. And uh, but it is that double stream audio. So at about the 16 minute mark in the show today, here's here's the end point right here, roundabout way explaining what happened. Um, so at about the 16 minute mark on the show today, the audio gets a little funky, but it finishes at about the 30 minute mark. And then it just it's clean audio all the way through. So um, it unfortunately happens during feedback. You know, I'm glad it didn't happen during the guest segment. And uh, we did have Jeremy from Spectro on. So uh, it interrupted a little bit of Jeremy's issues. But, you know, uh, for the most part, it's fine. And, you know, it's listenable. <laughs> it's listenable, which is all we can really ask for. Uh, it's just not ideal. So anyway, I do apologize about that. And, uh, you know, it won't happen again. And, um, yeah, I hope you enjoy the show. We interviewed James Bond, and it was really cool. So if you're into Disney music, this is the show for you. And, of course, Jeremy was great, as always. All right, everybody, that's enough. On to the show. It's time for the show that brings the magic right to your speakers. Ears up!
Welcome to the show, everybody. It's Ears Up Podcast, and we are here in the brand new studio. Um, and it's uh, it's pretty good. It's something, man. I'm pretty happy with it. It's definitely something. I'm going to turn my ears up so I can hear you. Oh, you sh- I think you should do that. Uh, for those of you who are wondering why there are only two very, very handsome um, <laughs> sounds going on right now, is uh, it's only Terrence and I yeah. for the show. Uh, Beverly is out handling some stuff. Taryn is in the other room on the couch, not feeling well. Yeah, she's dying in the other room. So, <laughs> right, she's dying in the other room in the uh, in the east wing of your house. I would say that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we finally moved. We officially moved and moved in. And I uh, spent the last I don't know week trying to set this room up, man. And uh, I think it's pretty cool. You can check it on the YouTube stream if you want. Uh, assuming that's going, uh, I don't really know, but uh, I'm, I'm hoping everything's going well on on streaming land. <laughs> And uh, y'all, uh, y'all like the new studio. I'm yeah. trying to put more artwork up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last studio, to be honest, the acoustically I thought was a little dead. Yeah, it was just there wasn't a whole lot of room tone in there. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to like liven it up a little bit, put a little more artwork up. Yeah, a little less uh, dampening, sound dampening, and uh, see what happens. I brought the wrong car tonight. I actually had something for the studio. I have oh, a. Um, I like gifts. A 19. I want to say it's. Um, Late '80s, early, maybe early '90s, digital Mickey Mouse watch, uh, still in the package so that we could put up somewhere as well. I, 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 I drove the Beamer tonight instead of driving the the Honda Pilot, the so, Roller. Sorry, the yeah. Roller. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's all right, Terrence. I, uh, I have, uh, I have the utmost faith in you that you will get that to me as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah. We do have a really good show for you guys tonight. I know I say that all the time, and then I know I say that all the time. Uh, but in this case, it's true. We're going to be speaking with James Bond, who wrote a fabulous book called Music in Disney's Animated Features, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves to the Jungle Book. And what this book is, is pretty much what the title says. He talks about the music in Disney's animated features, but... It's so, so much more than that. Yes. This guy has gone through uh, Disney archives and a couple other places to bring you the story behind the music yeah. of, of these. And not only not only the story behind the music of like each individual feature like Dumbo right. or Bambi or something like that, but how the whole process kind of evolved. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a couple cool quotes from Walt and a couple cool interactions that people talk about from Walt. Definitely. And it really kind of recenters your focus on... What really made the Disney company special and 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 a hit? To yeah. be honest with you, you yeah. know everybody at that time was producing a, a, a motion a, a motion pictures essentially, but without right. sound. Uh, but but you know it, it it adds a fuel to the fire of those people who who go oh well Walt he wasn't a genius. Mm. Yeah, no, he he was. Yeah, I mean, you know, just anyway, you got to read the book. We'll talk to James a little bit about it tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's some there's some fascinating articles in there, and uh, what I kind of like, he, he he put some sheet music in there too. Yeah. So for all you musicians and music nerds out there, and he talks about, <clears throat> you know, uh, some of the some of the the sheet music that he's seen being written by amateurs because mm-hmm. the timing is wrong or the lines are. I, yeah, the uh, the treble clef is in the wrong area of the staff and they have the sharps and flats incorrect and yeah yeah it was, it was really he, you can tell he's a musician right because he writes it as a musician when he's talking about how they intentionally go to the fifth of a 
a certain key and it was it was really it's a really good read it really is yeah and that's and that's why i i liked it i'm not a musician i would like to be you but are a musician. i just don't know you play bass i tab i'll do tabs all day long okay. but trouble clef i don't know man <laughs> your bass clef is what you worry about as a bassist. You're, sure. No, you're See? good. I don't even know. <laughs> maybe you're right. All right. <laughs> yeah, maybe you should stay. Away. Um, but I I liked that part. It's it's you're getting an insider's view as, as uh, uh, what what makes these things happen, mm-hmm. and and more importantly, who. Yeah. There's really. these people I've never heard of. Yeah. But I don't run in the in the music circles of Disney, so I don't really know if that's normal or not. But it's I don't know. For me, it was kind of cool. So I really appreciated the book, and we're going to talk to James a little bit later. Uh, we're also going to talk to our friend Jeremy at Spectro Radio. I'm assuming, I'm hoping, I've reached out to him, but I haven't heard anything back he's yet. He's in the chat. So he's, he's in the chat. this right now. All right. Well, fool, I texted you. <laughs> so guess what? Uh, anyway, you can find us on, you know where to find us. I don't care anymore. Um, All the Johns. Find us on all the Johns. Uh, we have a blog, uh, Amazon link, Cove Ears. Go to getcoveears.com. Please buy Cove Ears. Thank you very much. Um, Patreon. Sign up to be a Patreon supporter. We need to buy a fan for the studio. Yeah, it's getting warm. <laughs> it's stuffy in here, man. Um, our 100th show, Terrence, I believe, is officially sold out. It is. And I have people texting me and asking me for tickets. They're like, hey, can I get the backstage? No, like, uh-huh, I'm there's, sorry, there's, bro. There's, there's no, no more back, room. Well, there's no more. There's no backstage. There's no room. You got to talk to the fire marshal if you're trying to get in at this point. So, so what I think is going to happen, I'm going to reach out to the venue, which, of course, is Ralph Brennan's Jazz Kitchen. Mm-hmm. And look, if you're in the area and you don't even have tickets, you can come and hang out. Right, right. And they're just not for the show. But, you know, we're going to probably go to the park or go to uh, Trader Sam's afterwards or something right. after we're done schlepping our gear. I think gear. that is the plan for us to okay. to finish the show, get packed up, and then just go somewhere and have listeners buy us drinks. Right. Okay. We, Sounds yeah. good. Not only, not only do they pay to be there. <laughs> but they, they can pay some more. <laughs> right. Um, you know, maybe like the uh, Sonoma Terrace or whatever. Ah. Where there's never anybody there, and we can just drink a bunch of beer and hang out and chill. Yeah, because I, I mean, three. We're gonna do like two hours of radio, dude. Plus games and all that kind of stuff. It's gonna be hard, and then we're gonna have to tear everything. We're gonna have to be polite and be nice to everybody, and then tear while tearing down right. in the time frame. Because if we stay over the time frame, we're getting charged another whatever. Right. So we got to break all that down, then head back to the to the um, to the, the hotel. hotel Dump everything, head back to the park, which yeah. in and of itself is tiring. Yes. So on, it'll be... On a holiday weekend. On a holiday weekend. And a weekend. race weekend. Right. Oh, boy. We planned this one perfectly, We really we? did. <laughs> we really did. So anyway, my plan is to talk to Ralph Brennan, the jazz kitchen there in downtown. Did Excuse me. I'm not going to try to hide that one. Um, and see if we can't squeeze a couple people in there. So, okay. so check back. I'll probably put it on Facebook um, when they go up again. But we might have... Maybe five. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. We'll see what we can do. Um, speaking of Spectro, Jeremy will be there. Yes. I'm excited about that. Um, yeah, I hope everything sounds... How does it sound? It sounds good in here, right? I think it does. There was a um, slight echo, according to Jeremy, but... Okay. But it's Jeremy. Yeah. All right. Um, 
Jeremy, 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 Jeremy. We're fine, fine, fine. <laughs> I hope everything's good. It might be a little funky for the next couple of shows until we kind of suss everything out. We'll dial it in. That's work fine. the gremlins out. But uh, I have the camera in the uh, closet there. Yeah. <laughs> I want the main camera in the closet. Because I couldn't figure it out, right? Like back, the room is shaped funky. Yeah. It's like a little L. Mm-hmm. Or whatever. And, uh, you know, if I put it way back there by the door, it's too far away. Then you can't see anything. We're just right. blobs. But if I put it there, you can't get everybody. So I had to just put it in the closet, which is the halfway point, which right. makes sense now. And it's good. That one's mounted, and we might get another one maybe to put up there or okay. put up behind me. Okay. To get you guys, you know, once we get some better window covering. So I don't know. I'm digging it, though. I'm digging the new studio. That is. For sure. <clears throat> Let's do some feedback real fast. Should we just get Jeremy on anyways right now? Let's just get Jeremy on. You want him on during the interview? Yeah, I don't know. Why not? No, um, no, not, no, yeah, that's no, what I'm not during yeah. the interview. No, we're going to do him first, and okay, then we'll do the fine. interview. Sounds good. Um, Jeremy, dude, here, where are you? Message. Oh, here you are. I see you. I see you. I see you, Jeremy. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. Um, I want Jeremy on during the interview. But our setup is such where it wouldn't it wouldn't work well. Okay, there would be the delay with James. We're going to have a delay with Jeremy. Right. Uh, I would have sent Jeremy the book too. I mean, like here, yeah, read up because I think this is a show for Jeremy. Yes, he's he a does. nerd. <laughs> I'm calling him and he's not answering, so he's a bigger nerd than I want him to be. Okay, what I need a new mouse too, dude. I have. I remember, the, I have a mouse with like the ball in it. That's super. That's like sixth grade. I know. I'm like, I have to move it three times to move it to move the thing five inches, man. And it's uh, it's crazy. Um, okay, let me find feedback. <clears throat> we'll do some feedback. Jeremy, if you're listening, man, whenever you're ready to come on, message me, my pal. Oh, there he's right there. Sure, I'm calling. Why not? Jeremy has like eight different names. See, there he is right there. I need a different computer. <laughs> you're calling. you calling? Well, because if you're calling, I'm not going to be there. <laughs> oh, God, no. We would never want him on during the interview. What's going No, we would never do that. We would never <laughs> want that. You would outshine us, especially in this topic. I know. I can't. I can't. <laughs> What's going on? I love this. This new studio looks Hi. so good. Doesn't it really? Yeah. I like it, right? Yeah, got I'm a, a big fan. Got some Johns. Oh, we do. We, yeah. I know you're a big fan, but we need a big fan in here, dude. My my elbows are sweating. Like the inside of my elbows is hot. You know, I know the feeling because whenever I got, come on to the show, I turn the air conditioning off so you don't hear it in the background. Mm-hmm. And by the time I come on here, I'm like dying. <laughs> yeah. See, that's what you don't you know, understand. It's August. People don't understand. I got the, we got the door closed. <laughs> we got the windows closed. And I can see the trees blowing outside. So there's plenty of air moving somewhere. But in here, it's just Terrence and I breathing each other's air. Yes, it's, it's stuffy, bro. <laughs> yeah. But this is what we do. We sacrifice, Jeremy. We yeah. sacrifice to provide great audio and okay content. <laughs> um, I don't know why. We're doing it. Yeah, I don't know why I want to get you on for feedback, but I I don't know why not. Are you ready? You want to do some feedback? Oh, is that what we're doing? I I kind of sure. missed a little bit, so I don't know why yeah. I'm here. No, no, we're doing feedback. Okay, let's. And listen. we haven't talked to you in a while. Yeah. All right. Um, this is from Vince, Jeremy. He says, uh, hey, guys, I love the show. Keep up the awesome work. Except for Jeremy, 
He's a turd. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <clears throat> Please get rid of him. <laughs> yeah, he's the worst. Uh, sorry if this is a little long, but uh, I wanted to send you a message about how we hit the Disney jackpot this past weekend. Maybe we'll inspire others to roll the dice like we did. As a Friday morning, we had no Disney plans on the books. Over lunch with my wife, I joked to her that it has been a long week and we should go to Disneyland. To my surprise, she says, sure, which is four S's in a row. Sure. Surprise, she says, sure. <laughs> oh, that's... So she says sure, she by, the, sure. By, the seashore, <laughs> right. by the seashore. <laughs> right. Uh, trying to be as adult as possible, I gave her all the reasons why we shouldn't go, but the biggest ones were it was over a weekend, it was the summer season, it was a grad night weekend, and according oh. to the crowd forecast site, this weekend was ranked as do not even try it. Huh. <laughs> Amazingly, I found a hotel across the street for less than 125 bucks. When we walked at the park Saturday morning, it was empty. From the moment we walked in, we never waited longer than 25 minutes on any attraction. Wow. We walked over towards Town Square and found a big empty section on the curb in front of the train station to watch the electric light parade directly in the center of Main Street. After the parade, we literally stood up and were facing directly down the center of Main Street towards the castle for the fireworks. After that, from 10 p.m. to closing, the park was a ghost town and every single attraction was a walk-on. That's insane. Those are those miracle days, man, that just never happened. Should have bought a lotto ticket, too, man. <laughs> yeah. Right now, we're millionaires. No, I'm telling you that the way they've adjusted the blackout dates and the for the tickets, I don't know if it's different in Disneyland, but the high seasons have been turned on their head. You go in July and August, and it's a ghost town over the last two years. Really? And you go in September, October, November, and you can't move. And it's because of all of the state like the florida state um annual passes and their blackout dates that they they've they've changed it so that now when you go in the summer and which was the high season it's empty jeez that's crazy yeah people have been going nuts about it and myself included because i go on in october and i think i'm gonna run the place and i can't (laughs) even get in (laughs) this is my line uh, the next day, yeah. he goes on, he says, we went to DCA once we got into the park. 90% of those people made a beeline to Guardians. We walked on Soren. We waited 15 minutes for Toy Story. Bro, are you kidding me? Every ride in the park up until 3 p.m. was a walk-on. Before we left home on Sunday, out of nowhere, a DCA cast member walks over and hands my son a free ice cream cone. So you got free ice cream on top of all the Johns. I learned two things from this weekend. <laughs> Uh, one, sometimes the crowd website is wrong. Number two, even when it seems everything is stacked against your Disney odds, you might be surprised. There's still some pixie dust thrown around from time to time. Before Jason can protest why he would never try this, I am with him. Everything said we would be crazy to go, but when you get the Disney itch, you got to do it. Apparently, we had Walt on our side. That was from Vince. That's pretty yeah, awesome. Yeah, dude, hey, you got extraordinarily lucky, but would you do it again? That's the question. Uh. I wouldn't risk it. I wouldn't either. Wouldn't risk it. Hey, it's a lesson for the kids out there. Anything's possible. <laughs> if you believe. All the kids. Uh, this next one is from Kevin. It's a uh, dear ears up. I listen to your podcast all the time. As I'm a new member, I have a library of past episodes to catch up on, so your friendly voices are becoming very familiar. Hello, Kevin. <laughs> I wanted to write you from a different perspective, from someone who has not lived 
and had the possibility of visiting Disneyland their whole life. This is from someone who's never lived at all. Right. I'm kidding. (laughs) Never lived and never been to Disneyland. This email is rad. I I really like this email. Kevin, I did have to part out a little bit, but uh, this was one of my favorite pieces of feedback. Um, I grew up in England. uh, Not me, but Kevin. I grew up in England, and the thought of ever traveling to America was far beyond what my family could afford. As a child, Mickey Mouse became my friend from a very early age, and I grew up listening to the soundtracks of the film on the Disneyland long play records and with whatever chance I got when the animated classics were released in the cinemas. I regularly got my Disneyland magazine weekly, and one issue gave out a fold-out map of the Disneyland park, and I placed it on my wall next to my bed so that every night I would fall asleep with a layout of the park in front of me, Wow! dreaming that one day I may actually get to go. I knew the map like the back of my hand, and even though I regularly pleaded with my parents that I could possibly get to go one day, they simply could not afford a trip to California. Moving forward to the present day, my life and work has given me the opportunity to live and work within California for part of the year, and so I finally managed to visit the park itself. My point is that sometimes I hear you talk about how some of the rides suck and that certain aspects of the park are not to your liking and everyone has an opinion, but I feel that sometimes you're missing the point. To myself, and I'm sure some others, just being in the park itself is enough. To breathe the atmosphere and be somewhere that was all such a dream before is really magical, and I wonder if under the circumstances of it being so inaccessible to some, it makes it even more a magical place. The first day I actually got to go, I was like a kid in a candy shop. To visit the place that I knew like the back of my hand but had never been, uh, I could actually run around in it. It meant, and it still does mean so much. I visit Disneyland as much as I can, and sometimes I don't even go on any rides, but instead find a few of my favorite spots, favorite with a U, uh, and just sit in the park breathing in the atmosphere and watching the world go by. I often wonder if there are groups of other singletons who need a Disney fix who would like to meet up at the park to share the experience together, as I'm always there uh, so often, but mostly on my own. And some of the attractions I feel so silly on my own riding, but I would never let it stop me. So the next time you see an aging old man spinning around in a teacup on his own, laughing his head off and pretending he's 20 years younger, it probably will be me reliving his childhood dreams and making them a reality. Whenever I'm away from California, I listen to Ears Up podcasts, and it takes me back to the park that really really is, to me, one of the happiest places on earth. So I wanted to thank you for doing what you do, and I'm sorry to say I've never eaten a churro. Oh, but I think I should, as they seem to be an obsession of yours. Well, Terrence, really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And please never take Disneyland for granted. If you've been lucky enough to be living with it on your doorstep, keep up all the great work you do. I love your podcast. And this really isn't a complaint. just a thought for the day. You make rainy days in London slightly more magical. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, I think that's a rad. That's awesome. That's a good. And and you know what? And, And you're right. And I think we've talked about that in some of the earlier shows, how we must seem like just crybabies. Yeah, it's because of how accessible the park is to us. And I think and we've been, I mean, we've been going for years and years and years. It's six and, hours away. Right, exactly. And like with anything, if you visit a certain place multiple times, you have the things that you like more than other things. But if you go, if you wait your entire, if you sleep dreaming of a, with a map above you, then yeah, I mean, I, I completely get where he's coming from. Absolutely. Yeah, but that's it was a good reminder though. He is he is right. He's it's absolutely a magical right. place. It really is. Yeah, he's totally right. And uh hey, if you're ever in Dover, go to Breakwater Brewing. That's my friend Phil. Ah, nice. Tell him I send you and he'll throw a beer in your face. Yeah. Um, yes, and, and I would like to go to England at some point in my life, but I just I don't see that ever really happening because of flying and all sorts of fun stuff. But um, boats. Well, are you afraid <laughs> to fly? But I'm not a yes in the general sense of the term. Sure, 
It's a whole thing. Maybe we'll get into it on the secret show. We we'll, never know. Um, but yeah, the I don't know. That was cool, and and I think you know, maybe Jeremy can can relate. I don't know. Maybe he can't. Maybe he's unrelatable. Maybe he's a psychopath. I don't know. But like <laughs> Disney World, I, I I can't necessarily go all the time. It's probably. I wonder if Disney World's closer to people in England. Yeah, absolutely. It is right. It's not a six-hour flight. No, well, he should take the two. Uh, he lives in London. He said he should take the two-hour Eurostar, and he'll be in Disneyland Paris. Yeah, the That's best true. park in the world. Oh, jeez. What? Mm-hmm. Wow. Where's that hang-up button? <laughs> <laughs> it's too far away. Uh, this next one is from Raylene. She says, "Hi, ears up, crew." I just want to let you guys know I've been listening to your podcast since last fall. It's so enjoyable. It makes being away from Disney a lot easier. I'm up in the north in Canada. I love all the history and facts you guys do on the show. Heck, I even like all the research shows, too. You know what? All of it. Keep up the great work. I can't wait to hear more. Actually, she saw, calls it good work. I apologize. Oh, good work? Yeah, not great work. Just keep up the work. <laughs> that was me. That was me. Uh, projecting. Um, you guys really have voices made for radio, and I'm sure most people wouldn't mind you guys doing really long shows. Yeah. I don't know. I would. Yeah. I, per personally, for me, I get I get really bored with myself, and I feel like I just got to get it all out and then stop before. Because I feel like if I'm boring, if I'm boring myself... You're boring other I'm people. I'm boring other people. And maybe that might not be the case because I like a very narrow th spectrum of things. No, I, I just say leave them wanting more. Yeah. That's it. About two months ago, I just came back from Japan and went to their Disney uh, Disneyland and Disney Sea. When I came back from work, there was your show on Tokyo Disneyland. I wish I could have heard what you guys had to say about the place because I missed some really cool stuff. Tokyo Tower of Terror was super good, though, like Jason, I hate the drops. But I like to experience everything at least once. The coolest thing about this was the pre-show before the ride. Spoiler alert. We have no clue how a solid object disappeared. You have to experience that yourself. Okay? <laughs> if you guys ever make it to Japan, you have to eat the food there. Everything is so cute and good in Japan, like green alien mochi. Oh. That sounds kind of good. Uh, see, Taryn would appreciate that. To the girls, the popcorn is really good. Soy sauce was my favorite. Oh. I think that was Bev, like, that sounds so good. And That's they're just, both like, oh, my God. It's just salt. That is horrible. Fermented salt, though. Yeah, it's really bad. Uh, thanks again for the coolest Disneyland podcast. Oh, that's cool. I tried to listen to the other ones, and you guys ruined it. No one can compare to your podcast. I appreciate that. Uh, these next ones aren't so long. Sorry, guys. Uh, this next one is from Jacob. He says, so, hey, guys, in the last podcast, you talked about Star Wars Land, and there were a few things you read wrong. So when you asked if the starter story would be in a hangar, remember this? Oh, yes. Okay, yes, yes, yes. You will be in the hangar of um, a Star Destroyer. Did sense. we read that wrong? Or yeah, I, we, we read I, that wrong. I feel like the article was incorrect. Um, there's a possibility. I feel like we read it correctly. Okay. Specifically I can, I can me. Yeah, I can understand that. Okay. Also, when Terrence said that the land would be a mishmash of different planets, it's actually a single outpost on a planet we have never seen before. Sorry if I sound like a snooty Star Wars nerd. Thanks, Jacob. You'll be dead! Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. that was yeah. good. That was good. You're welcome. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there you go, Terrence. You messed up once again. Uh, <laughs> no. Okay. Hold on. Well, I did not say that it would be. I said I don't want it to be. Ah, I said I would rather right. have it be, you know, Dagobah or something like that, or Tatooine or have something like that. I was saying I don't Me want too. it to be a, a, a mismatch. Yeah. See, Jacob, 
You know what? Next 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 time, mm-hmm. next time we do a show, I'm going to reach out to Jacob. Are you going to put him in the? I'm going to put him in the in the press conference nice. room, and he will write a letter to us, apologizing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Last but not least, Andrea. Um, the title of this email is "I Got Stink Eye." <laughs> uh, good start. Yeah. Uh, hello, ears up, crew. I've been listening to you all for a little while now. Listening to you makes the world, the work day go quickly. Makes the world go quickly. Uh, <clears throat> I've been catching up and listening to the older podcast. You all crack me up, literally. I was listening to the coverage of an old trip of Jason and Terrence, and there was a bit where Jason was complaining. Weird. Which episode? Uh, all of them. About $8 Swedish meatballs. <laughs> and I bust out laughing. Well, the two coworkers in front of me turned around and gave me a stink eye. Apparently, one of them was talking about his new ideas for a project, <laughs> and he thought I was making fun of him. I was so embarrassed. I tried to tell him it wasn't him. It was expensive Disneyland meatballs I was laughing about. Needless to say, they turned around and continued their conversation. I, of course, quietly giggled the rest of the show. Anyhow, you all rock. I'm going to miss you by a few days at the park in September. Oh, man. man. I have a family of six, but my husband and I just discovered that we can go to the park by ourselves without shame. Mm -hmm. We head back for our second trip alone right when Halloween starts this year. Keep up the good work, y'all. Nice. Yeah, dude, forget those Swedish eight bucks for, what is it, like two meatballs? Get out of of my life with that. Where are those? It was for the. It was over the holidays. It was basically like the food and wine fest at Epcot, but it was like the holiday. They had kiosks all through DCA. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and you get a little sampler and you do the things, and it's really annoying. <laughs> you don't pay eight bucks for a sampler. That's a meal. Right. That's insane. No, no, they're like tapas or whatever. Jeez. Oh, I don't remember when. Remember when um, food trucks were cheap? It was like considered cheap food. Yeah. This is what it's like food from a food truck. And but now food truck food is like ten bucks for a Super burger shit. and it's like yeah. ah if I'm gonna pay that much money for a burger, I wanna sit down and have you clear my plate. Right. <laughs> Bring my check. I'm not gonna like I don't wanna swipe my card in a square. You know what yeah. I mean? And like get a paper napkin from a dispenser and go sit right. on a curb somewhere. Right. I'm way too fragile like for that. An animal. Like some kind of animal. <laughs> uh, here, let's do let's do this, Jeremy, and then and then I want to talk to you for a little bit. We unravel the magic behind some of Disney's most beloved pieces of music. It's Spectro time. This magic night, a million stars will play beside us, cast a spell of glimmering, shimmering, carousel. Hey, Jeremy. Hang on a second. Let me... This one's not going to be so good. Dude, I need a new mouse. Here, hold on. I've ever gotten. There we go. So, in that thing, my, my friggin' recorder just died. So, uh, your recorder. Yeah. Oh, God. Do you need two more batteries from no, over here? It's not going to work. I mean, it'll be fine, but I'll just I'll pull it from the YouTube. Okay. It, uh, whatever. I, this day. New studio, man. That's fine. Stu- new, new studio. studio. Jeremy, what's up, dude? So, I want to talk to you real fast before you get to your segment. Do me a favor, Terrence. Will you text James and just let him know we're probably going to be another ten minutes because we're long-winded freaks. Um, What's up with your with your station, man? You had you had a little bit of issues. You went dark there for a little bit. 
Um, are you okay? You back? What's up? Things are back. Uh, yeah, I was dark. I was dark for I think a solid week, and then I came back. It was a whole thing. Um, ASCAP. So there's different performance rights organizations. I'm going to try to explain this without getting too long-winded. <laughs> um, but there's performance rights organizations that you need the authorization from them or like a license from them to play the music that's in their repertoire. Okay. And ASCAP's a big one. And di- a lot of Disney music falls under ASCAP. So they had a dispute with the cor- company that I use to license um, they pay the license and they pay all the royalties. They track what I play and everything gets doled out to all the artists and whatever. Well, ASCAP had a little, and, and stream licensing had a little tiff. They're still having it actually. And um, they pulled their license, which meant I was broadcasting anything from the ASCAP repertoire illegally and was wow. liable, uh, subject to copyright infringement. Wow. Um, so uh it's still actually an ongoing issue and i but ascap reached out to me and said if you want to just buy a license directly you can do that and then you don't have to worry about us figuring it out with stream licensing and i kind of held off i held off and i what i did was i just pulled all the ascap audio off the station which made the station real boring um (laughs) Like, I couldn't play Spectro Magic. I couldn't play Illuminations. Like, it just, it was awful. And those are your Johns. Um, What's that? And those are your Johns. Those are my good Johns. I only had some Johns left. So, so finally, I bit the bullet. I paid. I bought the license. And um, I'm happy I did because it's this situation is still ongoing. And, um... I'm just, I just feel better that I have, a, I have coverage directly. It's not through any third party. No one can get between me and ASCAP now, and I can play anything in the repertoire. I immediately put everything back up on the station as soon as I did. It would be nice for stream licensing to get everything together and just keep going, but right. um, if I have to license directly with all the performance rights organizations, I, I don't know what will happen. You're going to go bankrupt. That, that stuff's yeah. not uh, that stuff's not cheap, man. And you know what? I, I do want to say I I appreciate it as an artist uh, and one who's had my artwork stolen and people profited on it. Uh, mm-hmm. I appreciate that you are willing to go the extra mile and not just throw the throw the Johns out there and let people you know let people listen to them for free and not pay the artist back. I really appreciate that you do yes. that. Yes. Yeah, it's. I think it's important, and um, you know, it's. I don't know if it's as much of a respect for the artist as it is a fear of going to jail or getting my entire like nest egg taken away from me. You're right. Um, but let's just say it's because I really respect the artist. Th- I think that'd be best. <laughs> Either way, I want to stay legal, yeah. and that's what I have to do. But you know, not for nothing. That and you know, I don't know how everybody works, but. I just have a hard time believing that a lot of the stations that I see out there that are just, if you look at Shoutcast, um, that they're all broadcasting legally. I have a yeah, hard time believing there's no that. Way. So, oh, there's no way, dude. There's no way. Yeah. Um, okay. What are we going to talk so about that's tonight? The story. Oh, it's a good, well, I'm glad you're back. That's my John. That's my John. <laughs> I'm also really happy that John is still around because <laughs> it'll never dies. I was worried it was going to be like a flash in the pan and it would get old, but like never. it's still here. Oh yeah. As far as long as I live, John will never die. Okay, good. Right. Thank you. Uh, what are we going to talk about today? I'm just going to get right into it, and I want you guys to jump in when you think you know what I'm talking about. Okay. Okay. So picture it. America, 1963. Yes, Golden Girls. I love you. <laughs> yes! Jeremy, I love you. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Miss Petrillo. That was amazing. 
Go on. Sorry, go on. Pepsi is sponsoring a pavilion at the upcoming 1964 World's Fair. The Wait, Jason, do you know what I'm going to talk about? Because you have no. the audio. Well, I have the audio, but I haven't listened to it. And okay. I, I right. think I know what you're going to do just from like the weird... <laughs> like a naming scheme that you have, so I'll, oh, right. <laughs> I, 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 I'm gonna wait for Terrence. I'll let Terrence do this. Okay, job. Right, he's go gonna get. Okay, the problem was the Pepsi board of directors had taken a long time in figuring out what type of attraction to sponsor. It took so long, in fact, that board member Joan Crawford had to ask Walt Disney, her close personal friend, to design an attraction befitting the image of Pepsi. Initially, Disney staffers had declined overtures from Pepsi to uh, design a pavilion, given that WED already had its hands full working on three other World's Fair attractions. However, Walt stepped in and accepted the challenge of designing and building an attraction in just 11 months. Joan Crawford insisted the Pepsi board move, the Pepsi board approve Walt's concept for a little boat ride around the world with animated figures yes. of children from around the world, each singing their own nation's national anthem to uh-huh. be called Children of the World. Yes. Should I jump in now or just let you go? <laughs> if you don't know it now. I know what it is. A small world. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> Jungle Book. Yes. Jungle Cruise. Okay. Yes. Very good. So with just 11 months to complete the attraction, development moved ahead at lightning speed. However, it was soon discovered that the idea of children all singing their own country's national anthems simultaneously would not make for a pleasant boat ride, but instead a cacophony of noise. Oh, my God. Especially indoors? Come on. Well, if you want to know what that would sound like, I made it for you. Yes. (laughs) There it is. My new ringtone. I swear to God, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, share that with me and drive. I might want to do that. <laughs> it doesn't even matter if that ride's air conditioned. I'm not going. No. Let me out. Yeah. Can you imagine that's your ringtone? Whose nightmare is playing through their phone? I I just. How long did it take? Like, what stage were they? Like, hmm, that might not work. <laughs> I, I would imagine it would be late. You know, I mean, like right. on the drawing board, it probably sounds fine, but I, I wonder if even like when the thing was built and they kind of rode through it the first time, I do <laughs> want to find out that point because how how are you going to know that? That's I know true. I want to know because on paper you're right. It's like oh, they're all singing their national anthem. How sweet! Let's go. <laughs> At the same time, <laughs> in an enclosed space, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so to, whenever they figured out that problem, I don't know when it was, but whenever they did. Walt went to his talented songwriters, Richard and Robert Sherman, and asked for a simple little roundelay. The brothers came up with the idea for a counterpoint, two tunes that can be sung back-to-back or against each other simultaneously. Richard Sherman recalled that the idea for It's a Small World came all, quote, came all of a sudden when we said all these children go up, grow up to be people and start having big differences and defiances and wars. But in the small world of children, everybody loves each other. It'd be a great thing if we could just say that in a wonderful way. 
their first concept was the song that we know today. But the brothers spent a further two weeks and came up with two additional songs, I guess, as a backup. When they first played It's a Small World, they played it slowly as a ballad. But Walt wanted something a bit more cheerful. So they sped it up. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, Walt approved of their initial concept, and the first demo recording of It's a Small World was created. Number two. That's cool. Kind of the, the the behind the scenes with the tone and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you want to, if you want a ringtone, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no one would ever call me. <laughs> As opposed to now, that phone is just ringing off the hook. <laughs> Next, musician Bobby Hammock was tasked with interpreting the track into the musical styles of all the countries to be presented in the show. Hammock eventually created 29 international orchestrations, a grand finale, and two separate versions for the cue and the exit. Take a listen to this montage of the cue and exit music orchestrated by Bobby Hammock, number three. Very lovely. Beautiful. After two years at the New York World's Fair, It's a Small World was packed up and shipped to Disneyland where it opened in June of 1966 during a ceremony where children from around the world poured water flown in from various parts of the world into the attraction's flume. Take a listen to this montage of the famous Walt Disney attraction, It's a Small World, and note the various musical styles from around the world to which Bobby Hammock adapted that now familiar tune, number four. God, how long did how much money did that take to fly on the money?
God, I love that. I just, I, I choke up when I hear that song. I love this Re- attraction. Really, that much, bro? Really? I. So, I, I hate this ride. By the way, hate. I know you both do. Hate, hate, hate. Loathe entirely, right? And but when God, you you have no soul, I do. But see, but I was, I was gonna say, but when you do your segment, you always pick things where I'm like, ah, I wouldn't care about him until I'm yeah. forced to listen to him. Then I'm like, oh, well, that really is pretty amazing. That is that is true, Terrence. Yeah. I'll give you that. It's um sort of a compliment. It's backhanded. Uh, you know what? It, I. Uh, I remember being like my first trip to Disney World with my parents and my mom went to the World's Fair Mm -hmm. and seeing Small World with her. She was like, I haven't seen this since the World's Fair. That's crazy. And she's like, I remember being a child and crying at this, how amazing it was. And here I am now seeing it again. So like, I just feel I don't know. Did you hear that? No. That was my email. Oh, good. Good. Um So I don't know. I think that there, I just think that there's something really special about it. Well, it's one of those rides that has Walt's fingerprints on it. Yes, um, I love it. Well, I do love it. I, you know, they, they've recently been been finding that uh, uh, trauma carries through genetically. So maybe that's why you love it because your mom was like, uh, maybe they weren't tears of joy; they were tears of f- stark fear. Tears of fear. Yeah, tears of fear. Tears for fear. Tears for fear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you love it because just genetically it's been imprinted upon you. All that. All that. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead, please. It could Jeremy. Be. We could do an one hour ma- on fear. <laughs> one major and noticeable change at the Disneyland version from when they mo- had it at the World's Fair was the installation of the now famous exterior Mary Blair inspired facade and its clock parade. Imagineer Rolly Crump designed the exterior in the 30 foot clock with a smiling face that rocks back and forth to the ticking of the clock. With the approach of each quarter hour, a parade of wooden dolls in native dress dance out from the doors in the exterior to a toy soldier version of It's a Small World. As the dolls return to the clock, doors open and display the current time. Number five. quieter ways to find out the correct time, but they're not as much fun. Hearing Walt's voice made me tear up a little bit right then. Aww. I, I have a soul. <laughs> I don't know. You hate Soren. Uh, yeah, I do actually. Yeah, I'm learning this every time I come up with one of these. You're like, I hate it. I do, uh, <laughs> people think I'm the negative one. You're more vocal about your negativity. Yeah, I'm normally true. in the background. That's true. 1983 saw the first Disneyland style park constructed outside of the United States with the opening of Tokyo Disneyland. Tokyo's exterior is identical to that of the di- version in Disneyland, except that it sports a more colorful scheme. Another difference is this version's finale is sung naturally in Japanese. Number six.
I love the Japanese language. Mm-hmm. I think it's rad. It's totally rad. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. I'll also say that the Sherman brothers, thankfully, are not part of. Well, when I was with having my old ass kept uh, issues, they're not part of ASCAP. They're part of BMI. So I was able to play every version of It's a Small World that I had. <laughs> and every time I turned the station on, some version of Small World was playing. That should have so. been all that the station was. Wasn't that yeah. just voted like the most hated song in the world or something? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, on your Twitter probably. <laughs> <laughs> there was only one option. <laughs> <laughs> and only one vote. I have one follow. Yeah. Oh, look, it won. Yeah. With the 1992 opening of It's a Small World at Disneyland Paris, the cheerful anthem is now being played somewhere on the planet every single hour of the day. Wow. Jeez. <laughs> Many classic Disney attractions received updates and modifications for the Parisian park, and It's a Small World is no exception. A completely new score orchestrated by the dashing, the savvy, the brilliant, the ingenious, the svelte, Ooh. the resourceful. Who am I talking about? Me. <laughs> I don't know. I'm talking about John Debney. That's right, John Debney. <laughs> Why do I love John Debney? No, oh, because his name is Debney, not Devney. Well, that's one reason. Okay. Why do you love listening? Because he did Illuminations. He wrote Spectro Magic. Spectro Magic. Same thing. (laughs) I guess the same thing. Maybe the listeners pay attention. Maybe. Pay attention. New vocals were also recorded for the attraction, which was also the first It's a Small World to feature sections devoted to North America. Throughout the attraction, the song switches between several different languages, including French, English, and German, and was recorded by children from various European choirs. Take a listen to Devney's masterfully reorchestrated version (laughs) of It's a Small World for Disneyland Paris, number seven. Now I don't know which one it is. That's gorgeous. It is. That was good, man. That intro was great. Yeah. And I will say, I actually don't know what Debney even looks like. He might not be spelt. <laughs> Terrence, pull up a picture of I'm looking right now. Jack Dempsey. And see <laughs> Jack what, Dempsey? Yeah, see what he looks the like. The prize fighter? Yeah. <laughs> the prize fighter. In 1997, Disney in California began a new tradition by adding the seasonal overlay It's a Small World Holiday, which sees the attraction brilliantly decorated in colorful Christmas lights on its facade, plus the addition of other holiday items throughout the attraction, as well as a new Christmas soundtrack that blends the audio of It's a Small World with the tunes of Jingle Bells and Deck the Halls. Disneyland Paris and Tokyo Disneyland also add the Christmas overlay to their versions of It's a Small World. Take a listen, number eight. Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, Jingle All the Way. Oh, 
Christmas is coming, dude. I can't wait. Terrence is shaking his head. No. It was pretty seamless. It was very, yeah, you know, it was perfect. Yeah. No. John Debney, English footballer who played as a halfback for Southampton in the Southern League from 1911 to 1915. I didn't know he was a composer. <laughs> Sorry. Um, He's done a lot. Yeah, I can't wait for uh, for Christmas. And that, that I, I do like, I will say, I do like the Christmas overlay of this ride. I've never seen it. It's cool. It's beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely. Wait, beautiful. have I seen it? Oh, maybe I, I don't know. I don't think I have. Mm-hmm. I've seen World of Color Winter Dreams. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm looking at John Debney. He's he's a handsome older gentleman. Mm-hmm. I'll give you that. He almost <laughs> looks like he should be on like soap opera. Or something. He's svelte. He's sort of svelte. He's, no, he's not. He's not svelte. <laughs> no, he's not svelte. <laughs> no. Look at this photo. He's like, Aww. I know you're judging me. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead, Jeremy. We get distracted too much. Go ahead, please. During a 16-hour operating day in the parks, the It's a Small World song is played, on average, 1,200 times. (laughs) Multiply that by the five Magic Kingdom-style parks that It's a Small World is in. That is 6,000 times a day across the globe, and it is not enough for me. (laughs) I hope, I just hope the aliens aren't listening. Right. Jeremy, thank you very much, my friend. That's my story. Do you realize? What's that? Two weeks from this very moment right now, oh. we will be talking to each other face to face. I know. First time ever. For first time in forever. In forever. But what happens if we don't like each other? Knife fights. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's going to be really awkward. Yeah, we reenact Bad by Michael Jackson. Uh, no, was, uh, was it Bad? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I remember that one. Well, yeah. see, I, I remember, remember that yeah. West Side Story with me like snapping. If you're a jet, you're a jet from your first cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> you're a jet. You're a jet all the way. Uh, yeah, I can't wait. You and Terrence are working on some games. Yeah, but not for next weekend. No, that's right. I'm I'm confusing the two things. I keep doing the same thing. I keep thinking that we're doing the hundred show in two weeks. Yeah, I basically forget I about from like September second until November tenth. It's all just it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jeremy, thank you very much, my friend. I appreciate thank it. You. We're going to talk to James and uh, talk about more music. So sounds good. Maybe you'll learn something. Yeah, get back in the chat. Throw out some questions. Anyone listen? To anyone in the chat? Make sure to uh, throw out some questions that you might have. Yeah, for sure. All right. All right. Thanks, homie. Later, guys. All Bye. Right. Bye. All right. Okay, let's get James on the phone. <clears throat> Let me solve all our problems. So I am recording now. I got 21 minutes so far. Fresh batteries. Nice. So we're good. Okay. We're we good. should be good. We're good either way. We'll be fine. Yeah. Why did it? Okay. That was like <laughs> a long know. time in between <laughs> rings, man. I got real nervous. Poor James. I did tell him Hello. 7.30. James... How you doing, man? This is Jason. I'm. How's it going, Jason? You, good, man. Good. You lifting weights? What's going on over there? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. I appreciate you uh, being a little bit more, uh, more, uh, you know, forgiving in our time frame here. I apologize about that. Sometimes we, sometimes we That's ramble fine. and lose track of time talking to other people, and you know, it happens. 
Sure. So before I get into your book, which is called Music in Disney's Animated Features, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves to the Jungle Book, uh, do me a favor and just give me uh, just kind of a rundown of your background in music. Um, I have a doctorate in music theory and composition uh, from the University of Illinois. And since I did that, uh, I've been teaching at several schools, mostly in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, teaching mainly music theory and music technology, a little bit of music history as well. Um, so uh, I'm an active composer and less of a performer, but, you know, uh, <laughs> mainly a composer. Mainly a composer. How long, how long have you been uh, composing music? Uh, since I was a teenager. Um yeah, so I, I started my bachelor's degree in composition, so I, I kind of always knew that I wanted to go into that field. Wow, that's amazing. See, that's what uh, what's, I love music, and I've always wanted to play music. Uh, I've tried, I've struggled playing the bass guitar uh, for a number of years and whatever, uh, but what scares me is, is uh, I don't know if scares is the right word, but is music theory, is is not being able to understand how you actually create music and put it into uh, into a melody and, and create a melody and create a song. Like people who can make songs, even if it's like three chord rock and roll nonsense, it still amazes me. And I I, I don't know. I <laughs> that's the part that's the part that freaks me out about trying to be a musician. So I'll just stick to tabs, I guess, for now. <laughs> Well, if that works for you, that's great. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. And then and then the second part is, where do you go with playing tabs? You can be a cover band, and that's cool, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. then and then and I because I, I struggle with like, well, what kind of what kind of uh, hobby? I mean, I guess it's a hobby, and you play a couple songs, and you know, like you play "Money" by Pink Floyd or whatever. And you go, that was rad. <laughs> it's the same bass riff for five yeah, hours, but exactly. it's cool. <laughs> and then you put it down, and you I don't know, go for a walk. Anyway. Yeah, in terms of writing music, I always tell my students, you have to let yourself suck before you can become good. <laughs> um, and it's well, it's really a leap of faith. You can't expect to write, have the first thing you write be good. And so you have to allow yourself to not be good for a while. And hopefully with each successive thing you write, you get a little better. Mm -hmm. And who knows, someday you'll be good. Maybe even great. <laughs> Hopefully, I like that. That's where I think I think we're at. We're letting ourselves suck for the first hundred episodes, yeah. and then after the hundredth, we're going to be great, James. So we'll have you back on when we're much better. We're going to hit our stride. Yeah, it'll be great. It'll be awesome. Uh, I think you're doing quite well. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate it. Um, again, the book is music and Disney's animated features. Uh, so let's jump into the book here real fast. Um, first of all, uh, like I was telling you a, bit, a little bit before the show, what I love about this book is that it's kind of a no-nonsense um, guide to the evolution of music in Disney animation. Mm -hmm. um, and you, I mean, you, you jump right into, well, the beginning of sound and the beginning yeah. of, of motion pictures with, with sound. And, and I guess, I, I don't know, Somewhere in the back of my mind, we know this, right? We know the history of film a little bit. We've talked about on the show, Steamboat Willie, uh, Playing Crazy. Those films really weren't very well received as we know them today until they were sunk with sound and had sound effects, but most importantly, music. 
And that's what kind of launched them. And, and you go into such great detail. And, and for every film that you talk about, Dumbo and Bambi, Alice in Wonderland and Peter mm-hmm. Pan, these mm-hmm. are the chapters, um, you, you talk about what, what I would call the unsung heroes mm-hmm. of the Disney company. And I don't, I don't think that's a stretch. You know what I mean? For that. For that. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, there's been so many books written on Walt Disney, and, and deservedly so. Um, but uh, he wasn't the only person working at that studio. Uh, he had a whole, hundreds of artists uh, and musicians working for him. And fortunately, the last several years, we've had um, books come out on artists like Mark Davis and Mary Blair, and there's one coming out on Ward Kimball, even Storyman. Um, but there hasn't been the focus as much on uh, the composers at the studio, with the exception of the Sherman Brothers. The Sherman Brothers mm-hmm. are pretty well documented, mm-hmm. but the other composers, their names are out there, but most people don't know uh, much about them. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's a shame, considering the role that they played in launching the, co- the company. I mean, I, I guess I can't really say that enough. You know what I mean? They were responsible for doing that. And, mm-hmm. you know, kudos to Walt. For for recognizing that and right. and we you know Terrence and I were talking a bit before we 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 uh, I think right at the beginning of the show mm-hmm. um, uh, about this topic and and about how people misunderstand you know people say oh Walt wasn't a genius I mean he was in the right place right time or whatever but you know some of the things maybe okay sure he had the foresight to buy a bunch more land and maybe that's more luck than skill but with regards to sound. Mm-hmm. He knew that that was the way to go. Exactly, yeah. And then, you, so they had to sit down and figure that out, but, but they had to develop a way to actually match the sound with the cartoon. Mm-hmm. They had to create a whole new path for that, right? Yeah, and um, there had been sound cartoons before Steamboat Willie, but none of them were really tightly synchronized. And the thing that really made Steamboat Willie different than its predecessors was that when you look at Mickey Mouse on the screen, it looks like he's playing instruments. Well, in this case, farm animals, but he's playing them as instruments <laughs> and it's believable. Um, you know, we take this stuff for granted, but if you imagine a, a world where you br- were brought up with silent films, it would look kind of like magic. Yeah. You know, there's this dr- drawing that's making music and, you know, it, it's no surprise that Mickey Mouse took American culture by storm, you know, uh, because of it. Um, and so, you know, it's really the music I feel that launched Mickey Mouse to stardom. And, uh, I think Walt understood that to a certain degree because music continued to play an important role in the Mickey Mouse shorts that followed um, you know, Mickey's almost always portrayed as some sort of musician um, playing different instruments or even hot dogs or Christmas tree ornaments or, or what have you. Yeah, which 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 makes sense. And I think it speaks to the obvious success of that. There's a quote in your book from uh, Oob Iwerks. Or is it? Uh, I forget. I forget. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Mr. Iwerks. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> after the, the, the initial uh, demonstration of, of the, you know, the sound. Uh, playing alongside the actual cartoon. He says, I never saw such a reaction from an audience in my life. The scheme worked perfectly. The sound system itself gave the illusion of something emanating directly from the screen. Equally excited, Walt exclaimed, this is it, this is it, we've got it. 
The enthusiastic group continued repeating the demonstration until two in the morning. I mean, I, I mean, to have your finger on the pulse of something uh-huh. like that 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 generates so much excitement is is pretty rare, I think. But then it obviously carried out through through the world. I mean, this is mm-hmm. what we do now. It's mm-hmm. just it's an it's a no brainer uh, unless you're an art film student and then you want to make a silent movie. And right? Then you know, there you go. Um, in, in yeah, your, it, go ahead, James. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was you. just going to say, yeah, it must have been extremely exciting to be in the ground floor of that technology. You know, we can only imagine it now. Yeah. But, uh, you know, this is just a handful of people, you know, that were, you know, pretty close to poverty in terms of the city was very close to closing. But, you know, they they found a thing that was going to take um, cartoons into the next era. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and then you, you mentioned still in the in the recording for for Steamboat Willie, they had one recording, um, and it, you know it didn't go so well. Uh, and then Walt pared down the orchestra, and they did a, a second recording. Um, and then it was afterwards that Walt realized the potential of the music, noting that it could replace some of even the sound effects, which would cut down on staff in the rehearsal time. Yeah, you know, so the the idea of working um, music into uh, working sound effects into the musical score is kind of a financial decision. It's just trying to save money so you don't have to hire more sound effects guys. But it formed the the early Disney sound where, you know, if you think of a classic cartoon score where, you know, uh, someone's walking up a stair and every time they, they touch a stair, you hear a little pizzicato and, and the scale goes up as they go up the stairway. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, thanks to the Disney studio. You know, thanks to Steamboat Willie. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And, and I, I can only imagine that other um, animation houses fo- try to follow that success. You, you, you mentioned there the uh, animators for Felix the Cat. Mm-hmm basically blamed these Steamboat Willie and the Sync Sound for kind of killing their their business. Yeah. Yeah, and furthermore, the first music director at, at Disney was Carl Stalling, who went on to really, uh, to his real fame is from the Warner Brothers cartoons, you know, the Bugs Bunny cartoons mm-hmm. and so forth. And, you know, he took that close synchronization. He started at Disney and he took that to to Warner Brothers, and he made it into an art form in and of itself. Wow, far reaching, man. I mean, you know, it, it, that's why yeah. I was excited to talk to you uh, mm-hmm. today, James, because you know we talk about Walt and Disney Company from the perspective of the parks, from the tangible items, but how we got here, we just assume it's all been business right. and just having you know insight, but. But I'll say it against the unsung heroes that are playing the instruments, that are having these ideas, that are, that are crafting all these, that yeah. that sinks it in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and as yeah. as as you mentioned before, especially coming from world with no sound, yeah. or you had a piano player at the, at the bottom of the stage looking up and watching the the motion on the TV or the motion on the screen, the right? TV, the, on yeah. the flat screen, right? And um, that was hell. That right. Was hung, yes. Um, and you know, trying to play along, you know, with with with, with that, and then you have Mickey Mouse playing, you know, using teeth as xylophones, right? I, I mean, that would just yeah. blow me away. Man. <laughs> that, would, that would just totally. Totally blow me away. Uh, so on, on that note, James, who, who do you think was kind of the most influential people 
uh, on the early sounds of the Disney cartoons? Well, you know, the the first one would be Carl Stalling, uh, but I, I think in terms of moving it to a, a more maturity uh, was Frank Churchill. You see, Carl Stalling had been one of those um, accompanies for silent films, and he hadn't written any music uh, down on paper, really, to speak of until he started working for Disney. Um and so when he was writing those early scores, he was basically imagining what he would play on a keyboard and then, you know, writing that for, for a small ensemble, for an orchestra to play. Whereas, you know, Frank Churchill was really more of a songwriter. He had done some uh, film accompanying, but he was really a, more of a songwriter. So he, he, brought more of a lyrical sense to the shorts. And after the Mickeys, you get into the, uh, the silly symphonies and with things like uh, Three Little Pigs and so forth, you start to have these really iconic songs uh, that we associate with cartoons. And that paves the way for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. You know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs would be a drastically different picture if it wasn't filled with songs. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's really the success of uh, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf and other songs from Silly Symphonies that paved the way for an animated film filled with songs. Because they were fine-tuning the art form they kind of progressed? I don't know. I wouldn't, I don't, would you say they invented that the art form or not? I'm, well... I think there were other studios that were doing cartoons that had songs in them, but, you know, because of Disney's technical expertise, because of their, their good animation, their um, good storytelling and good characterization, the silly symphonies outperformed all of their competition at that time. You know, when, when their first was an Academy award for animated short disney won that for eight years in a row wow. uh, and it was pretty much invented for flowers and trees huh. so you know they they left their competitors in the dust so um you know it's what i say that they invented it i have to look back at the timeline but they certainly perfected it yeah um why do why do you, you think know, they were why do you think they were so prolific at it? Was was it was it Disney being the the taskmaster and wanting perfection, or did he just have an eye for talent, or kind of a mishmash of everything? Well, he had an eye for talent, not just you know who to hire and what position to put him in, but pairing people to work with each other. That was probably his uh, great genius: is finding talent, putting them in the right spot, and getting them to work with the right people. Um, beyond that, though, I think that. You know, uh, you know, Walt Disney was interested in animation first and foremost, but I think once the music started to be successful, he recognized that that was a benefit to the animation. Hmm. Um, you know, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf becomes a mammoth hit, very successful on the radio and on recordings and so forth. And so why... Why look a gift horse in the mouth? You know, so they kept doing more uh, animated shorts that would have songs in that same vein um, 
essentially. And even if they didn't become as big a hits as Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, as cartoon shorts, they worked very successfully, mm-hmm. uh, by and large. And so that really, again, paved the way to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So um, we had a question from the chat. Can you talk a little bit about the Tin Pan Alley years and what that did for uh, the development of music for Disney? Yeah, well, Tin Pan Alley is really run out of New York and, um, you know, on Broadway. And the idea of Tin Pan Alley is that there were a bunch of songwriters who basically worked in this building and they would write songs all day long and, uh, what we would call A&R guys, uh, artists and repertoire guys, would come around and look for songs, and then they would pair those songs with an artist and or uh, a recording or so forth and uh, get it published on sheet music. And that's the way the music business ran in those days. Um, you know, Disney was on the entire other coast, <laughs> so they had the same approach you know, they had songwriters that were taking similar approaches. Uh, you know, Frank Churchill could have been a great songwriter in Tin Pan Alley, but he just wasn't there. He was at the Disney studio. Right. Um, and so there, if you wanted to compare it to Tin Pan Alley, it, it's kind of like Disney had their own internal Tin Pan Alley, where besides uh, Frank Churchill, they had uh, Lee Harleen, they had uh, Paul Smith, they had Ollie Wallace, um, and other composers at that time. And, you know, Walt would pair one of the staff songwriters with a lyricist, and then they would get paired with an orchestrator and so forth to create a finished product. Um, but essentially they're doing this internally rather than externally with a Tin Pan Alley. Right. Okay. And so would you find that a lot of um... – the songwriters. So, you know, you, you talk in your book about all of the songs that are written for movies that were never used. Would they just have like a, a plethora of songs to choose from at that point? Or would they say, hey, this is one or two projects that we're working on. Try to craft a song that is in that vein. Well, um, again, showing the importance of music at Disney is the story and the music kind of evolve at the same time as mm-hmm. they write the story the the songwriters are in the story meetings and you know they might say oh well this is a good occasion for a song or walt might say i want a song here and you know then the songwriter will go off and and work on that project now as this the story evolves they may decide like well this is getting a little long. We don't really need a song here. Or they might cut that entire segment. Or in the case of Alice in Wonderland or Peter Pan, Mm -hmm. they may, um, you know, Walt dumped that film, those films like two or three times. Like there was Alice in Wonderland was in planning stage in 1939 and they had an entire plan for it. And Walt said, I don't really like this. So they, they junked it. And then, I think it went through one or two other revisions before the final version, Mm -hmm. but they, they literally don't throw anything away. So when they, when they give up on a project, it just goes into a uh, storage and if they need something, they can always go back to it. And that's 
in fact, what happened to some of these songs. When the Mickey Mouse Club came on the air and they needed a lot of music fast, they went back to some of these old songs and changed the lyrics and, you know, put it on the Mickey Mouse Club. It makes sense. That's awesome. That makes total sense. So then let's, let, me, let me ask another question. I know Jason will love this. So um, I hate it. So did so can you can you explain the genius of Fantasia to us and the music behind it? Oh, um, it's you know, I love Fantasia out of this book because the music for Fantasia was not written for the film. It's rather adapted for the film. Okay. Um, but being a, a musician who's classically trained, you know, Fantasia is one of my favorite movies. You know, uh, some of the segments aren't, you know, my favorites, but there are some <laughs> that are just artworks that I can watch over and over and over. Right. Um, and I think one of the really interesting things about Fantasia is even when the music has a story to it, Disney specifically chose not to follow that story, but to craft their own story, mm-hmm. uh, more or less. Maybe Night on Bald Mountain is an, an exception, but you know, the Rite of Spring has its own plot line to it. But instead, Disney had dinosaurs and you know uh, showed a little bit of evolution and, and mm-hmm. so forth, and it made it into this real, real drama about life. Um, uh, the evolution of life. Um, and Fantasia is also kind of like the ultimate silly symphony where it's really focused on music first. Right. And then the animation adapts to the music. Um, and when you, I think if you want pure art of animation, the greatest thing to look at is the Nutcracker Suite. Yeah. Um, specific, specifically the ending. It's um, one of the most beautiful things ever animated, in mm-hmm. in my opinion. And you know, because of putting the music first, it's probably the best marriage of music and, and image ever made. Yeah. Wow. I agree. What What else I like about the book is that it's it, you get little. You get little tidbits, I guess, of, of, of history. So, mm-hmm. so here, here's, an, here's a, a little excerpt real fast. Uh, the transition from silent film to live action sound motion pictures matured with the works of Hollywood composers Max Steiner, Eric Wolfgang, Korngold, and France, uh, Franz Waxman. They were Austrian and German. All three formally studied music and composition. In fact, not only did Steiner study under Gustav Mahler, uh, but his godfather was Richard Strauss. Both Steiner and Korngold had experiences uh, experiencing composing for theater, yada, yada, yada. Uh, understandably, the classic Hollywood film score evolved to be symphonic in nature with a Germanic sound. And I, I just, I don't know, reading that, it's like, I, I like Mahler. I think uh, his dark pieces are very, very good, mm-hmm. and they kind of speak to me. Um, and and he, hearing, like reading that and thinking about, you know some Mahler pieces that I'm semi familiar with, um, and then thinking about the early, you know, uh, symphonic nature of of Hollywood sound and and music, it was like oh, it was an aha moment. And I like when books can give you an aha moment. Um, you, you know what I mean? Especially well researched 
material like this. You know, I, I didn't expect to to figure that out. So I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate just knowing <laughs> knowing little stuff like that. In the back, though, in the in the appendix. Uh, it's kind of cool. You have composer credits and animated features. Um, you have uh, cue sheets for all for I, I think what they're cue sheets, right? For all of the the yeah. films that you talk about. That's cool. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but I I think it's cool, <laughs> and it's I don't you know what I mean. It it speaks to 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 the level of detail you you include yeah. in this, and and if you're a music fan, if you're a music. Um, if you're interested in music at all beyond you know turning on the radio, right? Um, this is the kind of book that's going to speak to you. Yeah, and because you dissect it almost note by note for note in the music as well, it's fantastic the the amount of detail that you go into in this book. Yeah, how did you get? Sorry, sorry. How did you? Go ahead. How did you do your research for this? What was that entailed? I know you went to like uh, the Disney archives. How how was that concept for you? Well, when I came up with the idea for the book, I it was one of these things that like, well, why hasn't anyone written this book? You know, I gotta like start on it now. You know, be, you know, <laughs> there's got to be someone else working on this book. So, um, you know, I ran home. Uh, started work on it, but I had to, when I first started working on it, I had to commit to the idea that I might not get any cooperation from the Walt Disney Company. And okay. so I kind of, the first, the rough draft of the book was a, quite a bit different, but partway through the process, uh, fortunately, I was able to get permission from the Disney Company to access the Disney archives and the Disney Music Legacy Library. And in doing so, I also got access to um, papers that were held at other institutions where they want you to have permission from the Disney company in order to look at them. And so it was great to be able to look at lots of uh, primary sources and so forth. Just to give you a little bit of background, one of the great things about Disney, and, and you may have friends who kind of look down at Disney because, oh, those are kids' films and so forth. But <laughs> if you're a film scholar, Disney's really the best company to look at because Walt was so involved with everything, and he was kind of a control freak. And because of it, everything is documented, whereas <laughs> other Hollywood studios just throw stuff out or, you know, we, we don't know the thought processes for Citizen Kane or for, uh, for uh, Gone with the Wind. But every story meeting was transcribed and written down and every sweat box section, session was transcribed and written down. So we have, a, we have all those records. Um, and so the Disney Archive holds paper records like that, uh, story sessions, sweatbox sessions, uh, publicity, inner office memos, things like that. The animation research library, which I did not access, that holds uh, drawings, artwork. Um, And then they also have the Disney Music Legacy Library, which is they only let you look at things that are scanned, but they have a lot of stuff that's scanned. And that's, you know, like music, music sketches, arrangements, orchestrations, uh, stuff dealing with music. And by being able to access those two sources, the archives and the legacy library, um, you know, it's this, the, the 
the gravity of what I was doing really hit me. It's like, oh boy, now I'm really responsible for. I, I better do a good job. If, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm getting access. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be a little bit of a letdown. You know, so, <laughs> right. it was a it was a great experience to look at this stuff, but it also, you know, as uh, the Spider Man says, with great responsibility or great power comes great responsibility. That's right. That's right. Have you have you always been kind of a Disney film fan, uh, or or is this new relative to your music experience? Uh, no, um, I grew up in the seventies, which probably wasn't the best decade to be a Disney fan uh, <laughs> in terms of some of, some of the movies. Yeah. Uh, there were some great ones, but there were a lot of not as great ones. But uh, my dad's parents lived three hours south of Disney World, so we went to Disney World every every year, every summer. And in fact, um, I while I don't remember it, I was there before it opened as an infant. Um, my parents stopped at the Welcome Center and made uh, reservations for the following year. Uh, and so, you know, we, we love the parks and, you know, we go and see, you know, Disney movies on a regular basis as a family. And when the Disney Channel came out, we were subscribers. Uh, for a while, we subscribed to Disney News, uh, the magazine when it existed. Uh, so, yeah, we were a pretty, pretty Disney-centric family. Awesome. <laughs> That's cool. Man. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I don't remember it. I was an infant. <laughs> Um, on, on that, along that line of the the some of the the bad uh, Disney features, uh, or not not as good, not as I good. should say. Not yeah, what's your what do you think yeah. is your uh, is the most underrated musically Disney animated feature? Ooh, underrated. Um, I'm not sure any Disney films are underrated. Uh, well, you know, maybe the, some of the live action ones, but in terms of the animated films. The ones that are classics are classics, you mm-hmm. know. Um, I think the best, you know, single story film with the best underscoring is Bambi. I think uh, because the songs in that film, I think, are not as good. Um, we tend to not think of Bambi when we think of music, but the, the backing score is fantastic. You're absolutely right. Um, I would never have thought that Bambi had songs. Yeah, it does have songs, but they're not really that memorable. You know, <laughs> who who really sings "Love Is a Song That Never Ends"? You know, it's it's not yeah. bad, but it's it's not Hatuna Matata. It's not you know, um, uh, "Part of Your World" or any of those songs. Um, I you know, in terms of a movie with songs from from the era in the book. I just go back to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It's just really tight. The songs work really well, and it has this continuous, nearly continuous soundtrack that's really effective. Um, yeah, I, I just kind of always go back to that film. Yeah, okay. That's definitely that's definitely appropriate. Yeah. Uh, James, we're 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 going to wind up the segment here, um, but before I let you go, we do have a list. Of uh, seven or eight questions that we ask every guest that we that we bring on. Okay, here. Uh, they're sort of all uh, inside the actor studio. Um, it's, okay, it's our time to to really try to get try to get in your head into your space, <laughs> right? Okay. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, uh, you know, with uh, uh, you know, 
uh, playing along here. That would be cool. Um, the first question, what is your favorite Disney attraction? That's got to be uh, Haunted Mansion. Oh, see? Perfect. Good answer. Mine, too. Uh, yeah. What is your least favorite Disney attraction? Well, that's easy. That's uh, California Screaming. Oh. I, um, yeah. It's wow. Very nauseating. I, I, I want to be a roller coaster guy, but I just, you know, it's it, it's just rough. The the right. easier roller coasters like Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, uh, uh, the Matterhorn, I love them. They're great. But once you start going upside down, once you start going <laughs> zero to sixty, um, I'm I'm out. That's you know, not that's, you. Have you ever done yeah, the uh, so. the Goofy Sky School or, or you know or the Mulholland you know, Drive? Goofy Sky School, Goofy Sky School is surprisingly rough ride. Yeah, you know it's basically all it does is jerk you around a lot. Yeah, uh, it has one big drop in it, which is kind of fun, but you know, um, yeah, it's not my cup of tea. But uh, I'll tell you, I'd go on Goofy's. Sky School before I go on uh, California Screaming again. <laughs> wow. I'll tell you, man, Goofy Sky School is the most underrated terror ride. Um, it, you know, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm like 6'5", right? And so my knees are on my chest pretty much already. And, you I, you know, I can see over the nose of the cart. And so when you hit those 90-degree turns, or maybe they're not pure 90, obviously, but pretty darn close, I think we're going straight over. I, it freaks me out every time. Yeah. Yeah, it's on, yeah. It's it's a little terrifying at yeah, times. For sure. Um pie eyed Mickey or round eyed Mickey? Um I guess pie eyed. All right. Pretty I like good. I like the mischievous Mickey Mouse. Me too. Okay. Uh what old ride or attraction should they bring back to the parks? Oh gosh. Uh I'm an East Coaster, so I gotta go with Horizon. There you go. All right. Yeah. You just yeah. won some points with Jeremy, I'm sure. Uh, what current ride yeah. should they remove? Oh, boy. That's a tough one. Um, I haven't ridden on it, but I've heard a lot of bad things about what is the the Luigi's oh. dancing car thing. Yes. Um, the rollicking roadsters. Yeah. Yes. So I should pick one that I actually have been on. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really hard hard one to pick. It's a tough um, one. And you can't say the great movie ride because that's already gone. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, um, yeah, I have my opinions on that, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's not one I would have necessarily chosen. Um, yeah. You, you can pass if you want or, you know, whatever you yeah, want. Yeah, I'll answer for I you. I think, you know, the, the Aladdin, the Aladdin spinner. You know, it's just like how many spinners do you need in a park? You know, you've got Dumbo, you've got the Star Jets. Do you really need a third one? <laughs> okay. You know, I don't know. Apparently they so, do. There you go. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, who is your favorite Disney character? Oh, goodness. Um, that's hard to say. I hadn't really thought of that. I would, just off of instinct, <laughs> I would tend tend to say Baloo, I guess. But, solid choice, you know, my man. Yeah. That's a solid choice. I like Baloo, too. Um, okay, and then last but not least, if you could travel back in time 
and meet Walt Disney, what would you tell him? What would I tell him? Um, you know, I'd want to ask him a bunch of stuff. In terms of telling him, I think I'd tell him how how the company's worked out. You know, I think oh. I don't. I'm not sure he would be surprised that the company still exists, but I think he'd be surprised to see just how successful it's been. Yeah. Um, you know, parks in Shanghai and Hong Kong, (laughs) you know, it's pretty astounding. You'd blow his mind. I'm not sure what he'd think about Marvel and Star Wars, but, you know, to, you know, encompassing all these movie studios is pretty impressive. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Solid answers, James. Really solid. I appreciate well, it. Well, thank you. Yeah. And thanks for thanks for hanging out with us. Again, the book is called Music in Disney's Animated Features. It's a great read. Yes. Even if you're non-musical like me, it's, it's a really good, uh, well-researched, no-nonsense look into how music transformed Disney films. Yeah. And I, I, I can't put it another way. It's, uh, it's, it's really great. And I appreciate the book, and I appreciate you taking the time, James. Yeah, thank you, James. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. For sure. For sure. Have a good night, man. Okay, sure will. All right. Bye. Okay. Cool. That was good. That was cool, man. Yeah. God, that was like almost 40 minutes. Yeah. We've been an interview. Hour and a half right now. I'm I was sure. going to do some Disney news, but but we're going to I think we're going to call it. Okay. I think we're going to call it. Um because we're going to go record a secret show for Patreon. Yes. So it happened in the move, of course, me being a dummy. I I, ha- I I I lost I lost the secret show in the move yeah from uh, Concord to here and I don't know where it went I, I'm actually missing kind of a lot of stuff not a lot of stuff but like at least a box of things okay. I, I have some video games and oh. some of the old like Disney Infinity like characters or whatever Whoa. I cleaned up yeah I don't know I just they're gone somewhere so there's that okay it's a good show. It was a great show. It's the girls, though. I know, yeah. I know, but you know, I mean, sorry, whatever. The ladies, the ladies. ladies. Oh, it's a lady. <laughs> uh, okay, let me. So that's it, right? Mm-hmm. All right. You've done all the jobs. Do the fact of the show, and then we'll John out of this John. <laughs> it's the fact of the show. I got out of this book. Actually, it's nice. a good book, man. Yes, it is. It really is. Uh, fact of the show. <clears throat> As I read. The first Mickey Mouse Club was not started by Walt Disney, but rather by a theater yo- theater owner called Harry Wooden out in Ocean Park, California. And it was not as a way to celebrate Mickey or the Disney Company or anything, but rather as a means to get kids into the theaters to watch the Mickey cartoons. It was a money-making scheme. Nice. Walt heard about this, and he hired Wooden to spread the concept around. By 1932, there were one million members in the Mickey Mouse Club worldwide. That's insane. A million. A million. Okay, everybody. Thank you very much for sticking with us. Thank you to Jeremy from SpectroRadio.us or us. us. Uh, thank you to James Bond from uh, Music and Disney's Animated Features. He wrote th- literally the book on it. I can't recommend it enough. And I think we're going to give a copy away at the uh, 100th uh, episode. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, if you're going to be in the parks on September 1st for the run... I will be there. Terrence, you're going to be there, supposedly. No, I've got my tickets in my hotel. I'll be there. Okay. Bev's not going, is she? No. Yeah. Oh, she actually laughed. She said, you want to go to the run? That's right. She did laugh. (laughs) 
Uh, Taryn will be there as well. Uh, announcer man, Push, uh, Charlie, uh, who did who did the intros and does all the VO work for us. He'll be there as well with his family. Mm-hmm. They're going as we we, we were going to jump yeah. in on this, but the move I just I forgot about it. But as the what deceased the or deceased Incredibles, deceased Incredible, uh, deceased superheroes from the right. Incredibles, right. right? It's like all the black and white Johns. Mm-hmm. They have cost. It's just uh, crazy. They're but, amazing. <laughs> but look for us, Jeremy. I can't wait to uh, have a, a Krakatoa punch with you, yes. man. It's gonna be a good time. Uh, anyway, everybody, thanks a lot for tuning in, and we'll see you in the parks. <laughs> <laughs>